Welcome to the Business of Design podcast. I'm Cheryl Horn, Director of Operations for Business of Design. A lot has changed at Business of Design since this episode originally aired. For the latest information and rates on events and membership at Business of Design, head to businessofdesign.com. Enjoy the show. Hey everybody, welcome to Business of Design. You're in the right place if you are a designer, decorator, stager, stylist, architect, or all-around fabulous human being. I'm Kimberly Selden, and I'm an interior design professional like you. We are working together, you and I, to create a more thriving business for each of us individually and for the industry as a whole. I'm going to take this solo today because something has really been on my mind, and it's a common theme we see a lot at Business of Design. We see it on Facebook. We see it in social media. We see it on our own Facebook community page, and we hope you'll all become uh, a regular visitor there. There's terrific coaching. In fact, I'm going to give you an example of some of the coaching that goes on at businessofdesign.com's Facebook page. Uh, And we definitely see it within the membership of Business of Design with people who are actively taking courses to improve their business, the questions that come up and the kind of situations they find themselves in. So as I said, uh, something prompted me to speak out about a topic that is near and dear to me, and it has to do with being a solopreneur. I started out all by myself working from a home office uh, with all of the baggage and insecurity that comes inherent, I think, in that situation. And I had difficulty, like a lot of people I talked to, uh, difficulty owning my power, owning my bossdom, owning my business and running the business like a boss, like a CEO, like a president. I suffered from information that wasn't correct, information that told me because I didn't have a staff, because I didn't have overhead, because I wasn't well known, etc., I would therefore not be able to charge whatever I needed to charge. And when a client questioned me about something in my contract, I would have to give in because that's what you did. I didn't have a quote unquote company to fall back on. It was just little old me. Does that make sense? I hope this makes sense. Um, I'm going to read you something that was recently on our Facebook community page. I did get permission from these fabulous designers to use their first names and to read some of what was there. So I'm just going to launch right in. Hey, Kimberly, I'm having a dilemma and not sure how to handle it. Recently, I started implementing business of design into my process. Previously, I've worked off a retainer system whereby I would take a retainer, deduct invoices from that retainer, and then go back to the client for more money when it got low. This month, I switched to the retainer being applied to final invoices and monthly billing. I've also clearly outlined how I'm going to split my discounts. This client, and I've worked with this client before, is pushing back. I want to hold my ground, but this is also a very big project for me. I don't know if I should hold firm 
or move a bit to accommodate their request. So this is from Crystal. Crystal is in Vancouver. And then immediately one of our members, Roxana Usman, reached back out and said, give me more information. I'm not clear about what they're pushing back on. So Crystal went on to explain that I am billing hourly on a sliding scale. The client does not want to pay a retainer and wants 100% of the discount passed on to them. My mind knows this should be non-negotiable, but my confidence is wavering. Since I'm not project managing as there's a general contractor, I'm leaning towards reducing the retainer. It's currently $10,000 and I'm thinking of reducing it to $5,000 and passing on the retail discount, but not trade discounts. I think we can all relate to this, right? There's been a moment for every single one of us and sometimes a lot of moments where the client has redlined our contract or pushed back on something or at least attempted to see how flexible we were going to be. Hmm, just how flexible should we be? I don't know, for some reason I keep thinking of how low can you go? I don't know. Where do you draw the line? And she does say, Crystal does say, this is a very big project. So this is a big deal to her. I'm not remotely flip about this and, oh, you should immediately fire that person. Um, I was curious what other members would say to Crystal by way of advice A couple of people jumped in, very smart designers, uh, and as I said, one of them was Roxana, and another one, Yaren, says that we all do things we feel we need to, but ask yourself, who else would agree to this? Uh, There's not a line of designers he has worked with before who'd be excited to agree to these demands. I think that's a really good point, right? I mean, um, is this something that other designers would be really keen to accept? And the answer is, of course, there's always someone who's willing to do almost anything. But the truth of the matter is, if you know from running a business that your best situation is that $10,000 retainer, and by the way, I think that's a minimum retainer on every job for sure, then why would you give in? So Roxana chimes in and says, I would politely make certain I received what is currently owed and terminate the contract. I had to do this recently with clients who argued in front of me after four trips to their home and a signed contract. Although it was scary to terminate them, I now have three new clients who appreciate my value. Stand your ground politely and professionally. They will never take you seriously again if you don't, and it will cause you much stress words of wisdom. And you can tell just by hearing that, right, that what she's been through and you can feel what that feels like. I want to comment on one thing that will extend what Roxana suggests. And that is this idea that first you want to make sure you get paid and then you professionally terminate the contract. Remember that the point of the retainer is to ensure that you get paid. That is the policy we use at Kimberly Seldon Design Group, and it's the policy we use at Business of Design. I'm not apologetic about that with clients. The reality is we have worked with clients who, for whatever reason, have decided to challenge us when it comes time to pay the bills. And that didn't work for me. I didn't like how that made me feel. I didn't like the fact that I felt powerless. And I realized that the big corporations don't have policies that allow clients to do that to them. They always have a way to make sure that they get paid. So for example, if you don't pay your phone bill, they turn off your phone. If you don't pay your light bill, they turn off your lights. 
There has to be a way for us to protect ourselves when it comes time to getting paid. Unfortunately, that's the world we live in. So be careful about lowering your retainer. Remember, it's there to protect you. I'm thrilled to wrap up this particular conversation with Crystal's own words. Update. Hey, everyone. As you all know, I went back to my clients respectfully, held my position, and explained the terms were non-negotiable. I did agree to come down slightly on the retainer as a gesture of good faith, and they agreed to it all. In the entrepreneur hustle, it's not often that you get to stop and acknowledge moments of growth that you know will shape you and your company going forward. This was one of those for me. This will be bigger than all of my projects to date combined and on my terms. I couldn't have done it without each of you holding me accountable to what I knew had to be done. It's so true that you dictate how you are going to be treated. Love to all. Hashtag community for the win. And bravo, lots of cheering after that. And a follow-up comment from Kirsten who says, I have often found that we freak out in our heads behind the scenes when the reality is people just feel that they have to ask when it's a negotiation. When we say no, they just say, oh, okay, and they move on. No emotions necessary. Good for you, Crystal, and keep us all in mind the next time. It'll get easier each time you give your speech. And Kirsten is really right about that. So there's just so much wisdom and guidance if you are part of a community that is owning responsibility for their businesses. We are committed to improving how we do business. And that means creating policies that work for us. And we don't have to apologize about that. No, we don't. So I want to congratulate Crystal for being brave and for sharing that with your community. I want to acknowledge that it is scary and there is the risk of losing the client when you hold firm, uh, but she is proof positive that you don't always have to give in. And one thing Crystal said in the midst of all of this conversation is she was concerned that if she did give in this time, that it would just open the door to negotiating everything. And that has been my experience, that giving in sometimes to even a small thing that seems like not that big of a deal can sometimes give clients the impression that everything I uh, ask for is flexible and is open to negotiation, which is not the impression I want to give them at all. So I was really excited about that. It got me thinking about policies and guidelines that help me run my business. And further, thinking about the fact that if I am a solopreneur and I I want to stand firm and be courageous in these policies... I'm in a better position to do that when I use we language, when I say our policy is, hence the name of the show, and there's lots to talk about. I'm glad you're here. Welcome to the Business of Design podcast with Kimberly Selden. Business of Design is the coaching community for independent designers like you. We know it takes more than hard work and talent to successfully run a professional design firm. There are proven business strategies that can solve your immediate business challenges and transform your life. Don't try to do this alone. Join today and you'll have access to more than 100 video courses plus Kimberly Selden as your mentor and guide. 
Unlike traditional coaching, which can take years to produce tangible results, BOD is a fast track to immediate results for independent interior designers, decorators, architects, stagers, and landscapers just like you. Monthly membership is only $67.50. Annual members save two months and have access to Kimberly's contracts. What are you waiting for? We all know design matters. At Business of Design, we think designers matter too. Yeah, our policy is, it was really hard for me to use that language because I felt it was disingenuous, that it was just little old me and how dare I say our policy is when I was at the ripe old age of 28, 29 years old. Of course, I'm older than that now and I have more confidence and, and those words come easily to me, but there was a time when it was very difficult to say that. So I want us to think about that we language a little bit as we have this conversation. I also want to make sure I say right off the top that it's happened to me in the past that a client has tried to rewrite my uh, contract. And I learned a couple of things when uh, when that happened to me one time. A, I learned to never send the contract to a client as a Word document, but rather to send it as a PDF. Uh, I did make the mistake early on of sending it along as a Word document, and the client took the liberty of changing everything. And uh, at that point, I was already kind of finding my sea legs, uh, business of design style. So I was able to say to the client that that's wonderful that you took the time to rewrite the contract. And if I choose to hire you as a designer, we'll go with that one. But in the interim, we're going to use my contract. And the client immediately said, okay, no problem and signed the contract, which surprised the heck out of me. It was not the reaction I was expecting at all. I gave some thought to the language I would use in the event it happened to me again. And this is what I've come up with. And please don't try to text yourself while you're driving. Go to businessofdesign.com, episode 68. We will put this in the show notes so you can have it and use it. This is what I would say if someone tried to change the things in my contract. The contract I use was written specifically for me and my firm and our business with care to protect our interests and the interests of our clients and trades. It's been approved by an attorney, and it reflects the high standards and values we provide to our discerning clientele. We'd love to work with you, and experience has shown us this contract will help your project move efficiently and smoothly from beginning to completion. Again, don't feel like you have to capture that. We're going to provide that language to you. There's a few things I wanted to capture in that conversation. One of them is that it has been specifically written for this business. So unless your client is also an interior design professional with as many years experience as you, they're not really in a good position to tell you how your contract should work. That's one thing. I would never presume to tell someone who has a I don't know, egg delivery business how to run their business, right? 
The second thing it says is that it has been approved by an attorney, and that immediately lets the clients know that I'm running a professional business. I may look like a solopreneur, but I have a team, and one of the people on my team is an attorney who's looked at this contract and thinks it's fair and reasonable. So I think that's really good language to have as well. And then I remind them that this is the contract of a firm that has high standards and delivers excellent value, not just to anyone, but to discerning clientele. And let's face it, most people want to be discerning clientele. So I think that's a bit of a carrot there. If you want to work with my firm, you will join the ranks of other discerning clientele who've worked with my firm and use this contract. And then the last part is my favorite expression. You've probably heard me say it here a hundred times, but it is this experience has shown me, or in this case, experience has shown us. Experience has shown us that this contract will help us keep your project on track from beginning to end. So in other words, we're not just making this up. We're not guessing. We have skin in the game. We have experience. We know what we're doing. Let us run things. And then, of course, after all of that, if the client still insists on changes, personally, I know for me, I would walk away from that project. Easy for me to say. I know. I've got a lot of projects and a lot of clients. And some of you listening are saying, I will do anything for that client because I have so few. And I understand that. And there is no judgment. Just as long as you know that when you step into those projects, you're aware that you've signed up for a little extra grief. And that's okay. Sometimes that's a great way to learn. I'm going to read another email, and I didn't get permission this time, so I'm going to leave out this person's name. It says, Hi, Kimberly. I've seen you talking time and time again and saying that your contract protects your company, the tradesman, and even the client. You mentioned in a video that when a client wants you to do something outside of these rules, such as ordering without a deposit, you refer to the contract as an unbreakable, unchangeable agreement. I understand this when you are a company, but not so much when you are solo. Of course, I don't ever want to break my contract, but I wonder if being solo will allow the clients to think and say, well, you made these rules. You can also break them if you want. What would you say to that? You know, I'd have to say, yeah, I could see why someone would draw that conclusion. So this puts the onus on you, the business owner, to make sure that you're not constantly peppering the conversation with the fact that you're all by yourself, but rather you're using the confident we language. You're thinking about those people who are relying on you to do great work so that they get repeat and referral jobs and can continue to feed their families. So many people want you to succeed and need you to succeed. So again, you want to be prepared for the fact that you might run into that by facing those uncomfortable conversations up front in a safe situation like this. Maybe you're driving in the car. You can shut off the podcast and you can have a conversation with a potential client who might say that to you and then speak to the fact that our policy is, our firm knows from experience, speak to the fact that you're not a solopreneur and don't lead with the chin. By that I mean you don't owe the client any explanation about the fact that your home office is in your basement. 
That is not something the client needs to know. If the client wants to meet you face-to-face, you can meet at their home. And if that doesn't work, you can say, I'm going to be sourcing all day for another client. Let's meet at Designer's Walk. We can use the boardroom at so-and-so's showroom. So there's lots of ways for you to work around the fact that you don't want clients to necessarily know you have a home office in your basement. Now, I will also say, if you're completely confident and doing great work, it doesn't matter if you have a home office in your basement. You can still charge what you need to charge. You can still run a first class firm that has a high value and a high service level from your basement and you don't have to apologize about that. Plus, solopreneur or not, I assume if you have a policy written down or even a policy in your head, and by the way, that's such formal language, isn't it? We're talking about a rule, uh, something that you know from experience is good for you. Um, You've got that policy in mind. There's probably a reason you have it. We have hundreds of policies. For example, we work Monday to Friday, 9 to 5.30. Now that probably doesn't work if you're a stager, but for everybody else, I assure you, it absolutely works. Well, maybe landscapers, maybe landscapers who are executing you and you live in the eastern United States where the snow flies for half of the year, so you've got that limited window. So I'm going to give myself an out there as well. But the majority of us who are interior designers or decorators, live by this idea that because it might be more convenient for the client to show up on a Saturday morning, that we have to do that. And I would say that that actually is a real disservice to the industry. Plus, experience has shown me, there's that term again, experience has shown me that showing up at a client's house on a Saturday morning or a Sunday morning uh, is almost always a very bad idea. Saturday mornings, everybody's worked the week, especially if these are parents and they have children, young children. They are exhausted from the week they just put in. They are looking ahead to a weekend that is probably too action-packed for their own comfort. And it's a really distracted time to do it. Same thing Sunday morning. Sunday evenings, Even worse, I found, and I did try this over and over again, remember, the things that I talk about are things that I've actually done. I would show up on a Sunday night, they were just absolutely exhausted from the weekend, and they were also in that horrible space of dreading the next day, Monday. Lots to do to be ready for Monday, and here was the designer, here was the decorator trying to get them to spend money for a project. It never Ever worked. Conversely, Monday to Friday, 9 to 5.30, it looks professional and it works beautifully. When you are renovating your home, it's one of the biggest expenses you ever have. I mean, short of perhaps plastic surgery, I don't know, you know what I'm thinking about these days anyway. So short of that, spending money on your home is one of your biggest expenses. So why wouldn't you take an hour off work to have an important meeting about some work that's going to happen in your home? Of course you would. Very few professionals will modify their regular business hours at the client's request or demand. For example, if you need to go to 
to the dentist unless it's an emergency, you're going to have to work with the schedule that they already have. And we are a professional service. There's no doubt about it. And I think one of the things that can be helpful for me is to start thinking of myself as a corporation. Even if I'm by myself, I'm still a legal corporation, which means I have to follow certain rules. The clients need to know what those rules are. And those rules, in fact, make me look, I think, more professional. So a policy around business hours makes a lot of sense. Another policy we have in our office, when I go to a consultation, I will give that client as much information as I possibly can. I will sketch out a floor plan. I will sketch out some drapery treatments. And I will also list um, some retail shops where they might be able to find some of the items I'm recommending. However, we do not share any trades names at the consultation. Our policy is we don't share that information. So when a client asks me to give them the name of a plumber or an electrician, my standard go-to response is my trades work only for me and other designers. They do not work for the general public. Now, what do you think the result of that answer is? I feel like there should be some do 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 little music for you right there. But the result of that answer is the client's thinking, well, I want to get my hands on her trades. That's another reason why I should hire her. Um, and why don't I give them the trades? Don't I love my plumber? Don't I love my electrician? Don't I want them to have food on their table? In fact, I do. But the reality is when those trades come into a house and they're not supervised, there's not someone like me managing the project, things go wrong. And it happened to me enough times and the clients were annoyed with me even though I did not make any money. They were annoyed with me because I had given them the name of that trade. And by the way, in every single case, these were trades I've worked successfully with, but the client is not a professional designer. So they don't know how to manage those trades. And between you and me... The trades need a little managing. Would you not agree? So our policy is we do not share information about trades. Yes, we will share information about retail stores. No problem. We will not share information about trades. Another policy we have is we get paid for consultations. We recently did an event in New York City at Fuego, and we've got some podcasts coming up uh, that are from that event. It was a lot of fun. And there's a moment, you know, when I say something, and everybody's getting along great, and we're all having a great time. And then there's this moment where I say something that someone thinks is controversial or just wrong. Uh, And that happened to us in New York City, and it had to do with the consultation. My feeling is you should get paid to go to the consultation. And I made a joke that I think uh, hookers or professional sex providers have a better business model than interior design professionals because at least they get paid up front. And 
um, there were a few people in the room who didn't agree. They felt strongly that you should go to the consultation for free, that they enjoy the experience of meeting potential new clients. And um, even in one case, somebody said that um, she's so new that she just wants the experience of meeting those clients. So everything you hear on the podcast that comes out of my mouth, two things you need to know. One, this is my experience and this is my on-the-job experience. It's not a theory. This is my career. I do this work every single day. And if I say I've tried it, believe me, I tried it. And I have tried going to consultations for free and I don't think it works. However, if you go to the consultation for free and you just have the best time ever and you think it's amazing, you should continue to do that. I would challenge you to try getting paid first and see if it doesn't in fact go better. Because what my own experience has shown me, and in fact, now it's been backed up by hundreds of designers around the world, when you charge for that consultation, you are more likely to get the job afterwards. Uh, Some people cite percentages like 80% more yes clients following paid consultations than non-paid consultations. I would say my number is closer to 90%. Um, So I would really suggest that you at least try it. It won't hurt to try it. The worst thing that can happen is you'll get paid to go to a few consultations. And I think that is a problem you can live with. The reason I think you should get paid for that consultation is because at that consultation, the client is going to ask you a lot of information, a lot of questions, and they're going to rely on your expertise to give them great ideas. If you're paid for the consultation, you are free to give them great ideas at the consultation, and you can leave there feeling like the professional expert that you are. On the other hand, if you're not paid, you either can give your ideas away for free, which is great for a little while, and you'll do that for a few years, but then you'll get bitter and resentful and you'll start to say things like, well, you know, as soon as we get the job, then we'll give you some uh, more clear ideas about how we would handle that. And that, of course, everybody knows is just a pushback. So my feeling is this is a very hardworking meeting. This is a meeting where something concrete is going to be accomplished. I'm going to develop a scope of work. I'm going to give the client expert advice and I need to be paid for that time. And I strongly encourage you um, to reach out to other designers through Business of Design and ask them about their experience. I think you will find hundreds of designers will tell you it's a better way to go. And I think you will groom a better clientele. I don't mean a nicer clientele, but I mean a clientele that has money that is looking for a professional service provider and knows the result that they want. And I would say that that is a better client. I also think that your consultation fee is a terrific pre-qualifier. If you're going to the consultation for free, you can hardly be surprised when the client tells you they want to redo the kitchen, the bathroom, the bedroom, and the living room for $10,000. That client has absolutely no idea how it works in your world. On the other hand, if you go to that consultation for $500 or $600 or $800, um, then that client has some idea that this information they're about to receive has value, and this is a professional firm, and there will be serious fees involved with the service. The other thing I would say is we would even charge a consultation fee for friends and family. I know, I'm horrible. 
I'm actually not horrible. The truth is I have in the past gone to consultations for free for friends and family and it didn't go well. When I decided to switch my policy so that all consultations were paid, whether they're friends or family, and of course I don't mean my mother or my sister, but uh, certainly my husband's cousin, um, what happened is not only was I able to go to those consultations and be helpful, I was hired and my firm got paid and we ended up finishing the project and we're still friends and we're still family. Where Previously, when I've done those types of things for free, it has not gone well. So I have real in-the-game experience, first-hand knowledge that it's better when you get paid. And this is why, again, I would say it's really a great idea to have someone else answer your phone. So if I'm at a party and somebody says, oh, I would love to have you come out, terrific, I'm going to have, I soon get in touch with you on Monday to set up a consultation, right? And then I'm not the bad guy. I'm not the person who's calling them and saying it's $800. And it has happened that I soon called them back and they've said, oh, I had I had no idea it was that much money. I just can't do it. Great. Now everybody knows it's not going to work and we've been able to maintain those friendships. So that's my two cents. I feel strongly about it. Obviously, um, if you have a different policy, that's okay. If it's working for you, stick with it. But if there's any opening there and you think you might want to try something new, this is a great place to test it out. One of the things that's really lousy about being a solopreneur, I think anyway, is not having a team immediately available to collaborate or commiserate or to connect with, to run ideas past. Now, I would challenge you, if you're a solopreneur, to rethink that a little bit because the reality is you actually do have a team, right? You have, for example, me. I'm on your team. There are dozens of ways we can connect and you can connect with the business of design community to get coaching that you need to make you stronger. And there's absolutely no reason we can't be part of your team. Suppliers, retailers, tradespeople, they're also on your team, absolutely on your team. Your success is their success. If you thrive, they thrive. In addition to those key people, I would say accounting, bookkeeping people, your attorney, those people are also on your team. So even if you are a solopreneur and legally you're the person whose name is on the door and the buck stops with you, you don't have to do this alone. I think the key though is choosing team members who are mature and give you advice that is wise And we all know the difference between going out for drinks with some designer friends and complaining about work, complaining about the clients, complaining about the projects, complaining about the trades, and going out to a dinner with a group of designers where you're sharing stories and you're talking about solutions. And the fact of the matter is, no matter how many people something has been challenging for, for example, all of us find billing for hours challenging, no matter how many people find that challenging, there is a solution. The fact that you don't have it right now doesn't mean it's not out there. 
That was my mantra as I was developing Business of Design's 15 steps, those project management steps. Although I didn't know what the solution was, I was willing to try something new and keep hacking away at a problem until we got to something that worked. Some of the systems that we have at Business of Design were created out of sheer dumb luck. I tried something, oh my gosh, that worked. Other things were created after tears and tears and tears and failure after failure after failure and just tweaking it a little bit until one day it finally worked. Just know there is a solution even if you don't know what it is today, but being vulnerable and asking for help in a real way will get you the help that you need. Something else I think most solopreneurs really need to focus on is communicating the value we bring to the project. So often I meet designers and I say, what makes your firm awesome? And the response is, we do great work or we do beautiful rooms. And I would challenge you and say that everybody listening to this podcast does great work and beautiful rooms, or at least most of us, right? So that really isn't your value. What is your value? What are the things you deliver? What is the result of hiring? you for the clients. And as I think about that, and that's an exercise, by the way, you really need to attempt. There are courses at Business of Design that you can take where you define your value. I think that's a really important exercise. You can do it at a coffee shop, writing it down on a napkin if you want to. But what is it that you deliver to clients? And some of the things I deliver are actually tasks the client doesn't have to do. For example, we handle moving and deliveries and installation. That means the client is not stuck at home on a beautiful summer day waiting for a moving truck and then directing the movers and then directing them to unpack things and place things and take the packaging away. That's hours and hours and hours of tedious, hard work that a client isn't going to have to do. So as you're thinking about the results you provide and the value you bring. Make sure you're thinking of those tasks that are part of the job. You're used to them. You don't hate them, maybe, Uh, but they're not exactly fun. I mean, if you were going to have fun when you play tennis or something, I think I would go to yoga. If I wanted to have fun, I'd go for a bike ride. Uh, I don't know that I would necessarily uh, land at someone's house and direct movers to unpack things and haul all the garbage away. That isn't my idea of fun. But those are tasks that we provide so clients don't have to think about it. If it's been a while since you've spent any time defining your value, that is a really good exercise to take on, and I strongly recommend it. So a couple of things to take away from this episode. Number one, you're not alone. No matter how alone you feel, I promise you, you're not alone. The sound of my voice, the sound of other members' voices is here for you and available to you. And as we get stronger individually, we make the industry stronger. So it's important, this work that we do together. And I value the time we spend together. And I'm still open, by the way, to changing policies as we learn new information. Um, I will from time to time change things and try things out. Um, Sometimes I revert right back to the policy that I had, knowing it's a better choice. And other times I make small changes and small tweaks. 
Next week, you're going to hear part two of Kara Lowenthal's talk about confidence. And I think that ties in really nicely to this. As you go through the week ahead, listen for I language versus we language. Start experimenting with we language. Our policy is, our team believes, and know that this is not an untruth if you're a solopreneur. Know that your team includes all those wonderful people you rely on to get your work done week after week, month after month, year after year. The more you use that we language, the more strongly you feel connected to your professional self, the more powerful and the more confident you're going to feel with clients. That's been my experience at least and the experience of other Business of Design members as well. That's our show this week. I am looking forward to meeting some of you in Texas as we build out our Business of Design meetup. So thank you for giving us your name. If you're in Dallas, Houston, or Austin, or you think you might want to get to one of those cities, we're thinking about the end of October, the beginning of November as a meetup. And I'm looking forward to that. If you are in Australia and you're going to be in Melbourne in March, we're going to have more information about that coming up as well. And other than that, I hope you will give some real thought to honoring your own policies and procedures and understanding the hard work it took to even get this far. Give yourself a pat on the back. Uh, Take a moment to see how far you've come and then get ready to step up just a little bit higher this month and a little bit higher the following month. Let's see how far we can get together, okay? Have a great week, everyone. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for being part of the Business of Design community. If you love what we do, please show your support by subscribing to the podcast and rating our efforts. Remember, you can be a part of the podcast by sharing your comments, ideas, and questions via the BOD hotline at 416-780-9187, extension 107, or by sending an MP3 file to info at businessofdesign.com. And when you're ready to transform your business and your life, sign up for a monthly or annual membership. Together, we will achieve extraordinary results. Start today.